I was just thinking, you know, um, we, we sung Be Thou My Vision uh, at the beginning, and one of the lines in there encourages us to praise God that we are his adopted sons. And if you're female, you might think that's a bit strange. Um, but, of course, in the, in the Bible times, in the ancient Near East, uh, it was only sons who inherited. Daughters never did. So the fact that when we come uh, in submission to Jesus and come to know him for ourselves, then, as far as the Bible is concerned, all of us, male and female, are sons of God. We are equal in inheritance, irrespective of who we are. And that's a glorious truth. So next time you sing that, don't think, oh, hang on, I'm not a son. Um, you are a son, and it's a great thing, um, because God has given us uh, great things uh, together. Let's pray as we come to look at Joshua chapter 4. Lord Jesus, I do want to thank you and praise you for the wonder of your word. I do want to pray that this morning you would enable me to speak with clarity, but more importantly, that you would speak with clarity. Reach us at our point of need, direct us to the wonder of heaven and lead us to love you more day by day. Amen. Well, Joshua 4, it would be great if you had it open before you. Um, just by way of apology, I tend to use the ESV rather than the NIV. Um, but you have the NIV probably before you, which is fine. Joshua 4 displays the most crucial message ever given to humankind anywhere. It, it announces something every single person on the planet needs to hear loud and clear. I don't know whether you got that as you read it this morning. And as we come to any part of the Bible, it's important to ask the question, what is the point of this text? In this case, maybe we think the purpose of the incident is to show the people that Joshua is like Moses. As the people cross the Red Sea on dry land under Moses, so now they cross the Jordan on, on dry land under Joshua. As they took notice of Moses, so they should take notice of Joshua. I mean, after all, that is one of the outcomes, if you look down at verse 14. On the day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Well, fine. Joshua was like Moses. But, but that perhaps has little relevance to us here this morning. Or, or perhaps we think that the purpose was to show the nations around them that they should fear the Israelites and submit to them. We discover that in the very next verse. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So that was indeed an outcome. But again, perhaps little relevance to us here this morning. Or maybe the purpose of Josh 4 is to tell us the people wanted to remember they crossed over on dry land. In other words, God is very powerful. Now that, of course, is a helpful message to us here this morning, is it not? Definitely. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And perhaps the biggest problem often is that we don't have a very good imagination. So it does display the fact that God's power is immeasurable towards us who believe. But none of those things are the prime purpose of Joshua 4. Its message is more fundamental. The Israelites have wandered in the desert for 40 years. Finally, they've arrived at the Jordan whilst it is in flood. Now, if they'd waited just three more months, the flood waters would have receded and the Jordan would return to being perhaps 30 metres wide and somewhere between one and three metres deep. Crossing it 
would have been far more simple, especially for those who could swim. They've waited 40 years. Why not wait another few months? And you can imagine the more skeptical or practical people among the Israelites questioning why they're walking towards the Jordan at this time of year. This is never going to work. It's not the right time to cross the Jordan. But God insists, no, this is the right time to cross the Jordan because there's more to this event than meets the eye. And as I said, it holds a crucial message for us here this morning. So I want to lead us through three questions. Firstly, why does the river stop flowing? Secondly, how many stones were there? And thirdly, why now? You might think my questions are a bit strange, but hopefully it'll help. Why does the river stop flowing? Well, look at verse 15 and 16 of the chapter before. You looked at this last week. As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And then read 4, verse 18, when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up, from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of their feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. In other words, effectively, the ark stops the water flowing. The ark, of course, represents the presence of God amongst his people. This is God living among his people. It represents the Lord God himself going before them into the Jordan. God doesn't send them into danger from a distance, no, he goes first, dealing with the danger. And they follow on dry ground. And then, if you like, God follows them up and the danger returns. <clears throat> the ark, the presence of God himself, is what stops the water from flowing. How did the disciples put it in the time of Jesus? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The power of God on display. And then, I love that little detail in verse 10. The people of God hurried across. <laughs> I mean, it's so human, isn't it? And you would, wouldn't you? Even when the God of the universe, sovereign over all things, dries up the Jordan River, they're still a bit worried. Their faith is a bit rubbish. Maybe the water will flow back when I'm halfway across. Maybe God can't quite do it. Maybe this is a bit hard for him. So let's hurry. Our faith can be so similar, can't it? I know God is sovereign over all things, completely trustworthy, but I still worry because I'm human. And so are the people of God here. And thankfully, it's not the strength of our faith that matters, but the strength of the one in whom our faith rests. Let's look at the second question. How many stones are there? You might think the answer is obvious. There are 12. Verse 3, take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, bring them over with you, lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. It's not quite that simple, though. Twelve stones are removed from the riverbed and carried to their encampment, maybe two miles from the river. But those are not the only stones in the story. At the end of verse 8 and into verse 9, they carried them over to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. That's one set of twelve stones. Verse 9, Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. That's set of stones number two. Joshua returns to the middle of what had been just this morning a raging torrent. 
to the place where the priest stood, and he sets up another 12 stones at their feet. So there are 24 stones in the story, not just 12. And what's the point of them? Well, look at the end of verse 6. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So the initial purpose was to be assigned to God's people that when the ark of the covenant crossed the Jordan, the waters were cut off. Notice who picks the stones. One person from each tribe. So like the number 12 in all the rest of the Bible, 12 stones represent all of God's people. You might think, okay, 12 stones on the riverbank to remind them God saved them across the Jordan River. But why 12 stones in the middle of the river? I mean, no one's going to see them. They're going to be covered by the rushing waters of the Jordan forevermore. So what's the point of that? And the answer is because those 12 stones also represent God's people. God's people represented on the banks of the river at their campground, safe and sound. God's people represented in the midst of the river, in the place of greatest danger. Stones that remain there for days and months and years. The River Jordan rushing over them with its full force. Why are they there? Well, what does rushing water represent in the Bible? Think of the Red Sea rushing back over the heads of the Egyptians who sought to chase the Israelites. God's judgment destroying them all, Pharaoh included. Or think of Jonah cowering <coughs> in the hold of a ship, the ship being rocked by the rushing water of the sea in a huge storm threatening to kill them all. God's judgment coming upon Jonah, if you like, because of his rebellion. Or more expansively, think of Noah himself. The ark that rescues eight people from the tumult of God's judgment that destroyed everything else that breathed. Rushing water represents God's judgment against the rebellion of people who stand against him. And thus the Jordan River rushing in tumultuous flood down to the symbolically as well as physically dead sea threatens to destroy God's people. Back at the Red Sea under Moses, God destroyed those who rejected him, <coughs> who rebelled him, against him, who were not his people. They deserved to die for all the slavery and brutality and torture they'd meted out for all those years against God's people. They deserved to die. They'd rejected the God of heaven. It's kind of easier to be comfortable with that. But here at the Jordan, we find something much more alarming. <clears throat> God's people are not in any better place. They deserve God's uh, punishment as well. It's so easy to think, I'm better than those people, aren't I? They deserve what's coming to them, but I know better. I'm God's person. But here in the midst of the Jordan, we have 12 stones representing all of God's people, deserving God's judgment, just like everybody else. Joshua and all who are with him, <clears throat> all of them deserve the condemnation and wrath of Almighty God for their sin. His rushing judgment over them for days and months and years, and on and on and on. And they cannot save themselves. And then what happened? May I quote Paul? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's Ephesians 4. So 12 stones in the river 
to represent the judgment they all deserved, but also 12 stones on the bank of the river to represent the rescue that God brought to people who deserve the opposite. The whole chapter, if you like, is about terrible judgment, awful condemnation, but also astonishing grace, absolute mercy, and the glory and love of Almighty God towards us who believe. The only way these people could get safely across the, the, the judgment of God was through a divine act of God who stood in the river on their behalf. We deserve his judgment, but God saved us from it. God is great. Now, in case you're thinking I'm imagining all this as some kind of clever Bible wizardry, let's have a look at the third question which we asked earlier. Why cross the Jordan River when it's in flood? Now, we might think they cross now because it displays God's power much more obviously than if they crossed a couple of months later. And that's true, but it's also secondary. Pay attention to the text. We must always pay attention to the text. Verse 19, the people come up out of the Jordan when? On the 10th day of the first month. What happened on the 10th day of the first month in the Hebrew calendar? Well, according to Exodus 12, the Hebrew slaves select a lamb, which they then keep and slaughter at the Passover, representing their rescue by God himself. The tenth day of the first month signifies preparation for Passover. It's the day the substitute is chosen through which they're rescued from slavery. And of course, 1,500 years after this, Jesus himself prepares for the Passover with his disciples immediately prior to his own crucifixion. Jesus, who was himself the Passover lamb, who whilst we were still sinners made us alive. That's what the tenth day of the first month is all about. So they had to cross today, on the tenth day of the first month, because Jesus stands in the river of God's judgment on our behalf, taking upon himself the rage and fury of God the Father against all of our sin and rebellion, so that we could be brought to that eternal shore where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Joshua 4, on the tenth day of the first month, when they should be selecting this Passover lamb to represent their substitute, remembering God's rescue of them 40 years earlier, on this same day, they cross the Jordan. He is God, and he does not change. He rescued their fathers from slavery through the Red Sea, and now he rescues them. So what's the purpose of these stones? They're set up not primarily to remind them they passed over the Jordan on dry ground, they're not to give them a bit of a boost before the battles before them. They're not even a reminder that they're God's people and they could trust him to look after them. No, the prime purpose is given in verse 24. These stones are set up so that, what? So that all peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Notice the reach of intention here. It's not just that the Jews would know but all peoples of the earth would know. And that's the crucial message to the whole world and to you and me here this morning. It's the story of God as rescuer, not just for these Hebrews, but to anyone. The one who stands in the gap, that the judgment may not fall on his people. It's a story for you today. It's a story for your parents, 
for your siblings, for your children and grandchildren, for your neighbours, for your colleagues, for your friends, for your acquaintances, and for countless millions across the world who we will never know in this life. <clears throat> the message is very simple, isn't it? Have we trusted in Almighty God? Have we trusted in Jesus as the one who stands in the river of God's fury on our behalf? Have we depended upon him alone? Because if we have, then those memorial stones at Gilgal remind us, as well as them, Jesus has saved us from God's wrath to a glorious promised land. And if you have not, then trust in him today, that in his greatest and most rich mercy he will cover your sin, he will rescue you, he will forgive you, he will restore you, and he will save you so that you are his and you may fear him and worship him forever. There is no other way to be rescued from the torrent of God's judgment against our sin. He is our only hope. He is my only hope. And he is mighty to save. Let's pray.